Welcome to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this program, we talk with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government, and including aspiring candidates. Sit back and enjoy. Hello listeners, today is another day of a political point of view with Graham Priest, today's guest Simon Court, Act MP, who's domiciled in Auckland. Now Simon, um, how safe do you feel at the moment with all this carry-on in front of Parliament? Well, I walk to Parliament every day when I'm in Wellington, and I walk past the protest. Uh, I feel uh, safe. But there are many people there who have actually expressed a desire to cause harm to uh, the Prime Minister and to journalists and whose behaviour has been really um, quite disruptive and threatening to local businesses, uh, particularly uh, to businesses um, on Molesbury Street who have had to close. It's a pretty disastrous thing and also the... There's all sorts of blockages on, on parking lots. What, what the heck is happening? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think a lot of credit must go to the police for their response in the sense that uh, they have not escalated the situation. They have as best as possible attempted to contain it and they've applied what I think is a wonderful principle that people should have the right to protest and express their opinions as long as they don't infringe on the rights of others, damage property, uh, and stop uh, other citizens going about their business. I think the police have reached a point where they would uh, very much like to take action to move these people on, um, but any action that they would normally want to take, whether it's negotiated with the protesters or, uh, or whatever else they want to do, has been complicated by the actions of the Speaker, Trevor Mallard, turning on the sprinklers and playing music and COVID messages all night. I mean, that is not a police negotiating tactic. That's going to have the opposite effect on those people. Hmm. That was the next thing I was just going to bring up, uh, was Mallard's behaviour. Is it, does it behove the Speaker of the House to behave in a manner like that? Well, actually, after the Governor-General and the Prime Minister, he is the third most powerful person in New Zealand. And... This particular speaker has not behaved uh, in a way that you would say raises the standing of Parliament and members of Parliament, uh, not just with his playing loud music all night and turning the sprinklers on. He has a track record that goes back some years, um, including fighting in Parliament with other members um, of Parliament. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think New Zealanders expect and deserve more of uh, politicians. Well, as an outsider looking in, I felt it was totally childish. It's the sort of thing that you would expect from a, a high school kid, isn't it? Well, it's, it, it's, like, um, it's like something out of a movie, playing pranks on people who are trying to break into your house, like Home Alone, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, does your family feel safe? Uh, my family have contacted me to ask me how I feel, and, and I've told them, look, uh, there's plenty of security around Parliament, 
uh, the bulk of people who are there protesting are peaceful, and uh, I just do my best to come and go from work uh, with a minimum level of engagement. Right, you need um, a cloak of invisibility. That would be useful, wouldn't it? Well, it's pretty hard to be invisible when you're wearing a suit with an ACT Party badge on your lapel pin. I mean, people uh, have approached me and said, why won't you come and talk to the protesters and so on? And I've said, look, um, on on a one-to-one basis, as humans, as citizens, we can discuss things that uh, are important, uh, that relate to your freedom and so on. Uh, But when you come to Parliament in a convoy and there's people outside uh, with signs, uh, with nooses on them, um, threatening to catch and uh, capture and harm uh, the Prime Minister and, and, and the media, uh, we can't really engage with them in, in, in the way that we would normally engage with people at public meetings, for example, or when we take the ACT bus around the country and we stop in, in a town centre and, and, and people say, what are you doing here? And you say, well, we've actually come to ask you, what do you need from us? You know, what, what do you want ACT MPs to know? That's not the kind of discourse we can have with the protesters, unfortunately. The problem seems to be that it's a disorganised rabble with nobody leading. Well, I I understand there are a number of claims to the leadership, uh, but of course um, you have people there with extremely disparate and differing views, even on the reason why they're there and what's important. Um, and for that reason, you know, I, I understand that there's a heightened level of emotion. People who've lost jobs or have to have their businesses um, forced to close or lost employees because of vaccine mandates, uh, they, are, they are upset and for a good reason. Uh, but there's just such a huge mix of, um, of views and agendas uh, that it's uh, very, very difficult, not uh, impossible to engage with the group who, who are protesting in Parliament. But look, ACT has always said that the vaccine mandates are impractical, they won't work, or cause division. Imagine you're a small business owner and you've got three or four staff and one or two of them decide not to get vaccinated and they can't come to work. Well, how do you operate your business? We've always said that uh, rather than a vaccine mandate, it should be a vaccinate or test negative approach. Because if you're running a business where you can get access to rapid antigen tests, then you can test staff before they come to work every day. Um, that's what my old friend who works for the UN in, uh, in uh, Torino, in Rome, uh, sorry, in Italy does. She tests every day. Um, uh, likewise, many, many staff. So this is just a practical problem to solve. It actually never required a vaccine mandate. Well, there again, you've raised another problem. The rat tests are not freely available. Yeah, so look, the ACT Party has always advocated for the best available technology and we've asked the Minister of Health uh, and the Minister of COVID Response, Chris Hipkins, and the Prime Minister, uh, why won't you let New Zealanders have access to these rapid antigen tests and any other tests that uh, actually uh, means you can work out whether people are a risk before they come onto your property or into your business. It makes no sense that the government has first banned rapid antigen tests from uh, March, April 2020, right up until November uh, 2021, and then not only restricted their availability, but then commandeered the supply. So 
I guess it's just evidence that the government hasn't really had a plan to respond to COVID. All they've done is have a plan to respond to events um, and to manage their own uh, reputation, actually, before they uh, help New Zealanders cope with COVID. Well, I understand there's something like over 50 brands of rapid antigen tests that are available overseas. And they're in frequent use over a very wide number of brands. It, it seems illogical that we, we only seem to be concentrating on one or two. Well, that's the approach this government has taken, that they, uh, they want to control every single aspect of the COVID response from uh, Parliament. Uh, sorry, not from Parliament, from the Beehive. Uh, Parliament's where... Uh, where Parliament's where the opposition gets to ask questions. Um, yeah, control it from the beehive. And um, they've ignored the advice and offers of support from the likes of Rod Drury um, and you know, Stephen Tyndall, Sir Ian Taylor. They've all tried to help at various times. Uh, Sir Brian Roche and Heather Simpson wrote uh, a really good quality report into the investigation into the COVID response. Um, uh, back in and, and, and back in August 2020, before the last election, they said, "Here's a whole lot of things you could improve." So it minimises the effect on families and young people locked out of school and on businesses forced to close. The government's ignored all of that. So that's why ACT says, "Look, it's time for um, a complete reassessment of the COVID response. We need to look at whether MIQ is even necessary right now. You've got 800 cases in the community and about eight in MIQ." So what on earth is the point of locking all of these New Zealanders out um, and continuing to uh, put up roadblocks all the way up till October 2022 for people to come back to New Zealand? It's, 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 got, to, it's got to be looked at right now and the settings have to be changed. But can you think of any logical reason why we can't have other brands of rat tests? Uh, if, they, if they work um, and if you, if, if you can get hold of them, then we should be able to use them. But, you know, we would say the same thing about, I mean, in the areas that I'm responsible for, so infrastructure and transport, there are many products and systems for, uh, for say, um, carbon fibre reinforcing to replace steel reinforcing in concrete structures, where New Zealand companies making carbon fibre and glass fibre reinforcing have their products in widespread use in the United States in places like Florida, for example, and yet they can't get them readily approved here in New Zealand. Um, we actually need to change the way that the New Zealand government and agencies like local councils, for example, think about um, technology, because we can't have government and councils picking the technology that we want to use for, for things that are vital, you know, whether it's a health response or whether it's infrastructure. The MIQ um, situation, it, it appears that there's something like 300 police permanently tied up uh, policing at MIQ situations. Um, how sensible is that? Well, it might have made sense at one point in the early days of the pandemic when yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of information uh, available about how to manage it in terms of an overall balanced approach to health and welfare. And by welfare, I also mean um, the welfare of small business people, the welfare of 
people are locked in their homes with uh, family members or in situations where you know, they felt unsafe or children uh, unable to attend school in Auckland for, for months at a time. So, look, it might have made sense to have hundreds of police standing outside hotels to stop, you know, uh, returning New Zealanders escaping a few days early back in March 2020, but it makes no sense at all right now, none. Right, so your feeling is that MIQ should be dumped? MIQ should go. Um, that party put out uh, a media statement on the 31st of January saying now Omicron's in the community, it's likely to become widespread, you know, hundreds and then thousands of cases a day. It makes no sense to be stopping New Zealanders who, are test- who have tested negative and are vaccinated from returning to their home country. Secondly, it makes no sense at all to be excluding people who want to come and work here, whether they are engineers coming to work on major projects or whether they're fruit pickers, for example, who we desperately need, whether it's backpackers or um, people on the um, RSE scheme to be able to come to New Zealand and actually uh, lend a hand in our productive economy. So if we've got an MIQ system where they have to apply and then they have to stay in isolation for weeks, uh, even though they've tested negative, um, that has to go. We won't be able to restart New Zealand until MIQ is gone. So what's actually happening in um, Immigration Department? Do you feel that the Minister is capable or on top of it, or is he just floundering? Well, uh, Immigration could have been New Zealand's worst government department um, until the Ministry of Health took over that role recently. Uh, but look, um, the challenge that our government has with immigration policy is that it, it appears that it wants to reset immigration policy permanently by restricting the type of workers and who can come to New Zealand. Um, and look, they may believe they have a valid reason to do that. But it flies in the face of what New Zealand actually needs to grow and to recover. What we need to do is to encourage more people to come here with entrepreneurial skills, like the pioneering people who came to New Zealand, whether they came in double-hulled sailing rockets or sailing ships or steamships, or more recently uh, by aeroplane. They came to New Zealand because they thought they would be able to make a better life in this country. And they didn't necessarily arrive with millions and millions of dollars in the bank and businesses that were already successful. Many of them arrived with very little, but they wanted to come to New Zealand because they believed they could make a better life for themselves and their families. And that is fundamentally what the immigration policy of the future needs to look like. Because otherwise, in New Zealand with only 5 million people, with with an ageing population and with increasing demand for all kinds of uh, complex and uh, services that require highly skilled people. We simply won't have the people. Uh, all that will mean is we'll end up paying more for the fewer that we do have. The cost of living, the cost of life will go up. And uh, New Zealand just won't get ahead. We'll continue to fall behind the rest of the world in our living standards. So immigration policy is something that we need to have a really good look at. Yeah, well, as a corollary to that, New Zealand has depended for the last 30-odd years on... Um importing doctors and specialists uh, in something like the last um, 
well, since since the last medical school was introduced in Auckland, the population has more than doubled, but there's been no further input, output of um, practitioners out of the schools. So the shortfall has been made up with imports. And it's got to the stage where there are no imports and we're really feeling the pinch. What's ACT's policy on another school? Well, look, I personally am not uh, aware of a policy um, that we have on on whether we need another medical school. I'd have to take advice from the experts on that. But we do have uh, a shortage in our medical and health workforce. Um, that's been well understood in rural and remote parts of New Zealand for a long time. But it, it's not only rural and, or anything else. Currently in our area, it takes uh, almost two weeks to get a GP appointment. I believe in Levin, just further north, three weeks is sort of an average. Uh, and then it's generally by phone. Um, and it, it's a situation that's getting worse and worse. And we're not alone. The same same applies in Wellington suburbs. Same applies in in the Wairapa. Same applies in Hawke's Bay. Same applies in Taranaki. It's um, there's just an acute shortage, and we're not importing people because they can't get um, a visa to come. That's right. That's certainly compounded at what was an existing issue before COVID. But the government is actually carrying out a review into the healthcare system and uh, what they've proposed to do is to consolidate all of the district health boards into one centralised health board uh, based in Wellington. What we don't know, because they don't appear to have considered it, is whether they're actually going to consider uh, really important things like workforce planning. I mean, we know that uh, in the next few years, many doctors and nurses, experienced people, will retire. And there doesn't appear to be a plan to train uh, a, a medical workforce. Um, there's certainly no um, way that people can come into New Zealand freely and bring their families. Of course, the cost of housing plays into that uh, greatly as well. It's much cheaper to buy a home in, in most of Australia's major cities and co- close to where people want to live and work than it is in New Zealand. So we have some fundamental issues that uh, the last four years of this government policies have not addressed. Um, Act Party believes that we have better policies in that respect, uh, in particular to train uh, a workforce that's that's uh, fit for purpose. But again, a lot of that comes down to, you know, if Act was a part of government, what actions would we take? And uh, our health spokesperson, Brooke Van Belden, has already identified training and medical workforce as being a, mm. a very high priority. It's quite interesting. National Party had a policy before the last election that they were going to build another med school in, in uh, the Waikato with an emphasis on um, country practice. And that was canned instantly by the new government that took over. Um, didn't seem a logical thing to do uh, at all, in retrospect. No, no. And, and I guess that um, reflects uh, one of the fundamental flaws with the political situation we've got now. Two major parties, 
and we of uh, the Blue Party and the Red Party, when they when the government changes and one of them comes into office, they cancel a whole lot of work that the previous one might have set up um, and announce their own projects. But we actually have to get politicians out of decision making about workforce planning and infrastructure, for example. The people who know where resources are needed and the people who know where infrastructure, you know, whether it's in transportation or uh, free waters is needed, are actually uh, the local people who manage those assets and who who are working in their community. But what has happened over many years is that every time there's an election uh, announced, uh, politicians from all uh, sides of the divide will stand up and announce that they're going to build something here, whether it's a bridge or a hospital, um, and it becomes a, a political football. Well, it shouldn't. I mean, that party has a policy. We call it the nation-building agency, uh, which would take the politicians out of decision-making, leave it up to the experts of the Infrastructure Commission, combined with uh, local knowledge from the regions, and come up with a priority list of infrastructure and projects that need to be delivered across the entire uh, country. Now, whether that's in health or education, three waters, uh, roading and transport, um, if it's a priority, then that list should be agreed and should not be the subject of political, political decision-making and chopping and changing in the future. And if you combine uh, the smarts of the Infrastructure Commission with the funding capability that, say, Crown Infrastructure Partners, who brought um, a billion dollars to the table to deliver the Oxfast broadband project, if you combine the funding and the smarts of the Infrastructure Commission, we deliver a lot more infrastructure faster to where it's needed. That's how we're actually going to uh, produce healthier communities and uh, create a sustainable, healthy economy for the future. Okay, talking about infrastructure, what <clears throat> transmission debacle um, seems to be going on forever. What, what's the, what are the real problems that are causing this? When we go and look at the original procurement approach taken by the government um, through their New Zealand Transport Agency, they set a essentially uh, a maximum affordability number, which it looks like in hindsight was too low. In other words, they said, this is all we will pay for transmission gully. So no matter how much, how technically difficult it is, you have to fit your project price in, inside this number. And you think, well, actually, this is a project uh, breaking ground in some of the most challenging, uh, one of the most challenging places in New Zealand from an earthquake and seismic point of view. You have extremely heavy rains at times, uh, damaging winds over 100 kilometres an hour on, um, I think, over 30 days of the year. So all of these things, if you said, well, we need a highway that's going to deliver for 100 years of connectivity and be safe and secure potentially getting the lowest price isn't the most important thing. So, look, when I was a consulting engineer, I said to my boss at the time, crikey, you know, what's the one thing you can tell me um, about, you know, what I can do to, to, to be successful as a consulting engineer? And he said, you can do your best, Simon, but you can only be as good as your client. And I think in this case, uh, my old boss was absolutely right. The client or the government of the day and the government we have now 
um, they're actually not very good at being principals. They're not very good at being clients. They need to have a look at themselves and decide what are they, what's important, what are they prepared to pay for what's important, and, and what things aren't important. Because quite clearly, um, a, a bike bridge over the Auckland Harbour is not as important as completing a project like Transmission Gully to a high-quality standard. Well, is the current problem a design problem, or is it a problem of um, the quality of material being used, or is it plain incompetence in, in, in construction, or is it um, an overseas company that's not au fait with the relevant requirements of RMA and consenting? Well, there's a couple of questions here. Is it a design problem or a construct problem? Is it a consenting problem? Is it because it's a foreign company working here? Well, look, uh, the Transmission Gully Project, I understand, has problems with excess amount of groundwater in its pavement, which is one of the reasons why they're having to do some remedial work right now. Now, that's not a problem that's exclusive to Transmission Gully. There is projects further up the company coast where they've had the same problem, mm, and I'm aware of other projects around the North Island, um, up in the Waikato, where they've had the same problem. So then you'd have to come back to it and say, well, if it's a design issue, and and the client, NZTA, is signing off that they're happy with the design, then clearly something needs to be looked at there. If these highways aren't even fit for purpose, um, the, you know, even before they're built, then uh, the government side... NZTA needs to have a close look at what it's procuring. And when it comes to construction, um, construction defects are always the responsibility of the contractor. Um, you can't insure against those. Um, you can't really insure against bad workmanship. You can certainly um, try your best through your quality assurance processes to make sure that you that you never have to do rework. I mean, every contractor allows for, say, 5%, particularly when you're doing earthworks, maybe up to 5% rework. But that's all, they allow for that in their processes. That's what on-site testing is for. Um, there's some fundamental uh, challenges working um, uh, on sites like Transmission Gully. It's very steep, with a lot of groundwater. Uh, but those are things you should be able to design and build your way out of. And then you asked about consenting. Uh, I mean, I understand that it took over six months just to get consent to build the site office. Not because uh, the builder doesn't know how to build the site office. It's because you've got the consenting authority, Wellington Regional Council, holding them up for all kinds of things because this is the first big project they've ever had to consent and they were just frankly anxious and, uh, and, and afraid of getting the consenting wrong. Well, we have to put better incentives in place actually for councils to um, say yes to things. I mean, imagine if uh, Wellington Regional Council had benefited from Acts policy uh, where uh, for every... Um, dollar of GST spent on building and construction in an area, half of it went to the local council. Imagine if Wellington Regional Council and the district councils had got half the GST that had been paid on this bill. Actually, that's Act policy. We took that in the 2020 election. We believe that that would incentivise councils to say yes to things rather than taking a, um, a, a, a just say no and then issue them with a a request for more information approach, which is the way that consenting authorities typically deal with things. Well, the Capity Expressway has been a disaster in terms of uh, usability. There has been three major relays so far over extensive parts of it. 
and now there's another one coming up where parts of it are going to be taking six months to remediate. It just seems utterly absurd. And the same thing's happening again in Transmission Gully. Uh, well, Gra- well, Graham, I think there's a fundamental question to be asked and answered by the transport agency. Um, actually, are the designs that we once assumed were fit for purpose still fit going forward? We've got to take climate change into account because if you've got higher rainfalls and rising sea levels, and quite clearly, building roads out of granular pavements, gravel, isn't going to be as effective as building them out of concrete, for example. So you know, New Zealand hasn't built concrete roads since the um, US Army left in the 1940, late 1940s. A lot of those roads, um, particularly around Auckland, where I live, are still functional. They have been surfaced over with asphalt since then, but the underlying road base is still there and is still working fine. Uh, the transport agency needs to actually have a long, hard look at whether um, it's building stuff that is actually resilient and is going to last into the future. Hmm. Uh, how comfortable are you with CPB getting the contract possibly for the new Dunedin Hospital? Because they had a, a, a real major problem in getting and actually finishing the Christchurch one to a reasonable standard. Yeah, I, I'm not, um, as an MP now, rather than uh, an engineer bidding for work, you know, I'd have to stick by X policy and say, actually, politicians should not be in the business of deciding who gets contracts. I would have to assume and, and trust the people procuring a contractor to build a hospital that they've looked at their track record They've looked at their relevant experience, and it may well be that a lot of lessons learned from building the Christchurch Hospital recently um, have been uh, taken on board, and both the client uh, who wants to build the needed hospital and the contractor have agreed there are things that they can do better, and this is how we're going to solve those problems uh, with the next contract. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that, a, that's a collaborative approach. That's, that's how New Zealand should be approaching um, yeah. building infrastructure. Simon, that's a neat political answer, (laughs) and it's well said. Uh, This has been another session of A Political Point of View with Graham Priest. Today's guest, Simon Court, ACT MP, uh, based in Auckland. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this programme, we've talked with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government and including aspiring candidates. This programme is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.